I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hey everybody, Scott Burnside here for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the podcast, part of the Athletic Hockey Show Network, soon to take over the world. Love that. Pierre Lebrun, what a, we have a banner day on Two Man Advantage. I'm so excited. We're going to hear from Dave Haxtall, new head coach of the Seattle Kraken, and our good friend, Katie Strang, along with Rick Westhead, who's your colleague at TSN slash CTV News. Uh, they're going to drop by and we're going to talk about the, the, what is, it? I think, maybe the biggest story in sport right now, which is the uh, uh, allegations that two Chicago Blackhawks were sexually assaulted during the 2009-2010 season and uh, how video coach Brad Aldrich went on um, and was convicted of sexual assault after that and how the Blackhawks responded and how now the NHL is responding to that. So we're going to hear from Katie and Rick. It's going to be a big day here. And I'm going to end. We've got so much to talk about. The awards were last night. But like, what was your... What's your overall take? Are you watching at home? I can't remember. Were you in the studio? I don't think you were. But what what was your response to the the awards overall? I kind of like the very brief, punchy half hour show in and out. What what did you make of it? I didn't watch a single minute of it. I have to admit. Uh, but um, just on the awards themselves, uh, I was surprised Andre Vasilevsky didn't win the Vesna. Yes. Now, super happy for Mark Andre Fleury because it's such a compelling story and it's his first Vesna and maybe the nicest guy alive and, and, and deserving of it, uh, had a great year, but you know, the GMs vote on it. I, I, I just, I'm surprised. I mean, the NHLPA just had their poll and Vasilevsky was named their top goalie. I I'm surprised the GMs didn't feel the yeah. same way. Like to me, I don't think it's, it's really questionable at this point. <laughs> the best goalie in the world is, uh, so that one surprised me. And I was surprised only mildly by Adam Fox winning the Norris. I have no problem with him winning, I think I had him second on my ballot, but I had Victor Hedman at one. Um, 
certainly could have had Kale McCarr there too. Fox, McCarr, Hedman, all really good choices. But I think I guess I guess I thought it would hurt Fox more than it did that that he wasn't on a playoff yeah. team. It's all yeah. super, super talent and good for him. But traditionally, when the writers vote, the playoff thing has been a has been a factor, and it clearly wasn't this time. Yeah, I wonder. It, do you think that's just a function of Jeff and I were talking about just before we started recording? Um, and I, you know, it was a hard year. I found I found it really difficult because even, and I know you're doing this, uh, you as a matter of course as, as well. But when you talk to, I talked to a GM, and we were talking about uh, we were talking about the rookie of the year, and, and you know, at that point. Uh, Kirill uh, Kaprizov, Kaprizov had really outdistanced uh, Robertson from from Dallas. But we were talking about, and he said, you know, he says, you probably see more of those kids than I do because I only see the mm-hmm. seven teams in my division. I, I don't know what else, you know, like that. that's who I'm watching. Those are the only ones yeah, I see. Yeah, it, 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 it made it a tough year that way. And, and even, you know, when I, as you remember, I pulled all 31 yes. head coaches for the yep. Norris, just out of curiosity for a piece I wrote in early May. And, you know, some of the coaches said just that, that they, you know, they hadn't seen everyone like they would have liked to see, but they also wasn't close. Victor Hedman won that poll in a landslide when it came to all 31 head coaches and all 31 voted in yep. my poll. So again, interesting that the head coaches who run the bench on the NHL teams had it differently than, than uh, the PHWA, yep. but that's fine. I mean, I don't think this is not the year to get into social media fights on the awards because again, it's so weird with the, the, the teams playing in their own divisions. So I, I certainly was going to be Zen like regardless of who won, but, but certainly Vasilevsky not winning the Vesna and, uh, and, and to me, uh, Hedman not winning the Norris were, were mild surprises, but nothing that I'm, Get yeah, me too. And it's interesting. I I, I talked to a uh, an NHL goalie and analyst ab- about the Flurry winning, and I admitted my surprise as well that it wasn't Vasilevsky. He wondered if it's a it's a Tampa Bay Lightning award fatigue that you know, like they. Well, anyway, he just he just threw that. Out. It wasn't he, a criticism. It's just you know, I was going to tweet this and I didn't. I don't know why I was multitasking at the time, but you know. Um, Lou Lamorello, you know, winning GM of the year. Mark Bergevin was runner-up, mm-hmm. correct, in the uh, voting? That was announced, I think, last week or the week before. You know, pretty interesting to me, Julian Breesbo wasn't even nominated. <laughs> yeah. And again, this award is voted on by GMs, by their peers. And it crossed my mind whether there are some GMs who didn't like the whole Kucherov LTI. Yes, good point. And, and whether that was being held against... Uh, Julian Breesbois in that voting. Um, so I don't know that. No one has said that to me. But, you know, Bill Zito was the third finalist for GM uh, of the year. And again, I got no problem with that. I mean, phenomenal first year in, in South Florida for yep. Bill Zito. But normally, and I have to go back and look at it because they vote after the second round, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, they because they vote after the second round, it's it's 90% of the time three the three finalists are from the final yes. four yeah right so they went out of their way it seems like not to now then again uh, Kelly McCrimmon wasn't nominated either I guess right so. yeah that's true yeah, interesting. Uh, I want to I, I want to ask you a quick question about the Golden Knights and about Flurry and and uh, you know 
I, I'm curious. I'm curious with about a lot of teams. You and I have talked about this with Colorado. What you know? What do they happen? To, You're just a curious, I'm curious man. And and actually, I was reading your Rumblings blog this morning. Uh, very well done as as usual. I was surprised. You basically guaranteed an offer sheet for Kale McCarr, right? Do I read that correctly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I am. I wrote about it, but by the end, uh, by the end of the the portion on it, you can tell I'm still asking the question: Are we actually going to see this? But I have to write about it because it's come to my attention from a couple of league sources that this is being batted around yeah. as a possibility. I'm still dubious on it, but then again, I never saw the Montreal Sebastian Ajo offer sheet coming either. That completely blinds yeah. me. Yeah. Well, it- but I. I think the point that was made to me this week by a couple of league sources was if you're ever going to go ahead and deal with the aggravation and the wrath of an offer sheet, a 22-year-old Norris Trophy runner-up might just be yeah. worth it. And, and and obviously, that's that's the point here with Kale McCart. As I wrote, and I talked about this on Insider Trading last night, I mean, the Avalanche are a really smart front office. They are cognizant of all this. They understand that there might be a team out there lying in the weeds, willing to do something stupid uh, come July 28th, and and they're ready for it. And by being ready for it, I think it means, A, they're going to do all they can to obviously come to an agreement with McCarr uh, before that can even happen. Um, But number two, even if it happens, they have contingency plans in place, I think. They would obviously match. No question they would match any offer sheet. But it means they may have to trade player X, player Y, right. who knows, right? Yeah. So, and actually, I started talking about the Golden Knights, and then I veered because I, re- I had read your piece with interest. But I think of Colorado and Vegas in, in kind of the same way, in that, you know, two teams that are are really built to win now, and both teams, you know, saw their playoff uh, runs come to a very disappointing end. Um, and I'm curious what you make of, because uh, I am going to go back to the Vegas situation, and Marc-Andre Fleury, I mean, such a great story, as you point out, but... Like if you're Kelly McCrimmon and it, you know, can you go another year paying your goaltenders twelve million dollars? And you know, we we, we know that uh, Alec Martinez, who I thought was, I know he played with a broken foot. I thought he was outstanding all year for Vegas. What a great ad um, by the Golden Knights! But he's UFA and he's the kind of guy with his experience, two-time Stanley Cup winner in LA. You know, teams are going to want him, but I assume Vegas will want to keep him as well. But my point is, can you get better? Can you address in Vegas a gaping hole down the middle that I think cost them that series against Montreal? And I know lots mm. of discussion. Could they take a run at Jack Eichel? All those things. But can, you can't do, in my mind, you can't do any of that if you're paying your goaltenders $12 million. I, I don't see how you can, I don't see how you can fill other holes or even keep a guy like Alec Martinez if you've got $12 million tied up in, in your goaltending, which leads me to, you know what we've heard Mark Andre Fleury trade rumors in the past as recently as last offseason could he return to Pittsburgh all those things I, I'm just curious what you make of that I, I really don't think you can have that much money tied up in gold ending for another year but it's it's really hard um, because Mark Andre Fleury has such a sentimental value never mind the fact that he just won the Vesna trophy to Vegas Robin Leonard you know uh he signed there for a reason. They committed to him, and he's a very good goaltender. So, how do you? Like, it's clear that Flurry's the one on his last year. That that's probably where you're looking. But I don't know that it's that easy. It's not just about yeah. hockey. So, yeah, really fascinating to me. And um, again, Flurry with some no trade protection, he has a say in all this. 
going to be fascinating to me for sure because that would be a huge loss in Alec Martinez. And again, this is a team that, you know, the, the salary cap this year was frozen. It's going to be frozen again. And it's a team that when they had injuries this year, couldn't ice a full yeah. lineup because of, they're so tight against the cap. So pretty big decisions coming for for Vegas. And, and certainly, you know, as they decompress and analyze how they lost to Montreal, um, are they good enough at center? Yeah. Well, I don't. They you are. Know, you know, are they good enough <laughs> yeah. at center? Yeah, I don't right. think they are. I mean, I, I think the, it, yes, but but it's it's obviously I, it's obviously a question they must be asking internally. You know, George McVie and Kelly McCrimmon and the rest. Okay, and and if the answer is no, then how do you get better? And and what kinds of hard mm. decisions get made? I mean, we're talking about you know Colorado will have to make hard decisions. Vegas is going to have to make hard decisions. It's it, it is the function of the world we live in in this flat cap era for the next two or three years that's that's the reality so yeah and i mean and i think as an organization too if you're if, if you're vegas you don't you have to don't you have to really ask or give the opportunity to cody glass yeah. 22 years old um you know i think same draft classes as nick suzuki right um, who the Vegas also drafted, but you know Cody Glass probably needs a deep look here. I mean, you got to know if he can be a top two center. I think he can, but I don't know for sure. I haven't seen enough evidence yet. But you know, you you drafted him where you did, um, you know, six overall in 2017 for a reason. So I think you got to give Cody Glass every look here too. as being part of the solution. Yes, and you are correct. Same draft, Nick Suzuki taken. 13th overall by Vegas. So, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Let's move along here before we uh, talk with Katie and Nick, as promised. And, of course, Dave Hackstall later in the show. I, I was uh, There was a lot of interesting uh, elements to Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and their remote state of the union. I miss – I. Man, I miss a lot of things. <laughs> I miss being in Tampa for the final, and uh, but I miss being – you know, that's sort of a – you know, it's a it's – a, a, a moment on the calendar, right? I mean, Gary Bettman always does his <clears throat> state of the league address before game one. And uh, it's, I think it's an important, it has been an important um, moment because it catches you up on the league and it allows reporters to ask hard questions about difficult topics. And he was asked about the Chicago investigation, which we'll get to with Katie and Rick. But I, I was, um, I was curious about his response and Bill Daly also on the the whole Olympic thing and and man very right. I knew you were going <laughs> to get to that very yes. um and it was very uh, to me and I I, I want to know what you think of it but it, to me it was weird because it's not it, it's not just can the IOC and the IIHF and the NHLPA and the NHL agree on certain um protocols and and rules and payments and and the things that have been outstanding you know, for for years, it, this seemed to take on a like. Well, we want to see what what's what's it going to be like in Beijing. What's going to happen with Tokyo? And like it seems to me, they mm-hmm. were asking a lot of questions that cannot be answered in the very short window they have to make a decision, which is basically what three to four weeks. It, you have to you have to know. So you can schedule. Well, they 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 they've confirmed that the schedule is going to be out before the July twenty third, twenty fourth draft, or right or right, right around yeah. that time. So for for practical purposes, that is the deadline for an Olympic decision. So we're down to three weeks. Um, so that's not a lot of time. <laughs> and now I talked to the NHLPA yesterday as well. There's still hope that this can get done, but even the PA, and, and this is such an important matter yeah. for the players. The players re- wanted this in the CBA. They got it in the CBA. 
Um, and they're going to certainly push to make sure they try and get this over the finish line. So there was still hope, I think, from a PA perspective yesterday that despite admitting that it's late in the game, that there could still be an Olympic deal. But no guarantee at this point, that's for sure. And, you know, I think if I were to summarize how Bill Daly and Gary Bettman feel about this, it's not that they're generally against Olympic participation. I think they know they got to go back, that it's, that it's best for the game. I don't know that they feel that this is the particular right time to go right now, where there's this is still a world affected by COVID in terms of practicality and logistics. Um, the IOC is holding its breath as to how the Tokyo Summer Games are going to play out. And so Beijing, is, it's hard to get the IOC to completely focus on Beijing right now, uh, which is, has affected, I think, the negotiations to some degree, even though there have been some very deep negotiations with the NHL sure. on this. But... There's just some unanswered questions to your point. And, and one of them is, and I hadn't even thought of this, is that I don't know that there's such a thing as getting COVID insurance. And the only reason I bring that up is Bill Daly himself during that news conference talked about that. Yeah. As a, that's the first time I've heard that issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I made a few calls yesterday and I was like, well, good luck getting an insurance company to underwrite superstar NHL players who's, who might miss you know, extended time if they get, a, you know, if they get yeah. COVID. Uh, and so it's not just from an individual perspective, an issue, I guess, but also as someone pointed out to me yesterday, well, what if all these superstar players come back from the Olympics and they all have COVID and they all can't play in the NHL for a month? I, like there's, so there are all these things that I hadn't even thought of as, as a possibility, I think have now crept into some of the uncertainty in these conversations. And at the end of the day, I still think, NHL star players are willing to risk all this because it means that much to them to be able to play for their countries in the Olympics. So, man, am I ever fascinated to see how this ends up. Um, you know, and yes, Olympic participation is in the new CBA. But if you, I went back and I read the language, uh, let there be lawyers, but essentially, and maybe it's semantics, but really what it says is every effort will be made to negotiate an Olympic right. deal. yeah. <laughs> so by the end of this, you, if you're the league, you might be able to certainly claim with some measure of truth that every effort was made. Um, so who knows? We'll see where this goes. Definitely a different sort of, like you said, I mean, the whole idea of COVID insurance and, you know, really wanting to, you know, with the unknown of Tokyo, which is, mm -hmm. but if you, if I guess my question is like, I don't know. Maybe you can't run – It's to me, it would be easy to run two models, wouldn't it? Right? You, I mean, it's a computer thing. You run your, you run your well, schedule. There are, well, there are – our understanding is, even though Lee hasn't confirmed this, but we believe there are two right. schedules that have been created. Right. But the league does not intend to release two schedules on July 20, whatever, around yeah. the draft. They're releasing yeah. one. So, it, it doesn't feel like there's much leeway past mm -hmm. the draft. Um, I should point out, I reached out to IIHF as well. Actually, I emailed Rene Fussell directly that – president of yep. double IHF, but um, one of his uh, assistants answered back with a statement from Rene Fussell um, that while he agreed it was late in the game, that he still held out hope that this could be figured out. So obviously double IHF is directly involved in this, right? I mean, in many ways, it's actually double IHF spearheading the negotiations with the IOC with the NHL and HLPA being fully right. informed. So important to certainly to, to, to know that Rene Fassell 
still thinks it's uh, yeah. doable. Uh, all right. Let's do uh, a couple of things just before we take a break and then uh, come back with Katie Strang and Rick Westhead. Um, how about uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins? Big new deal in Edmonton. Uh, mm. Look, you know what? Listen, and I thought Mark Spector, uh, our good pal in Edmonton, you know, put it nicely in a in a tweet or what after it came out because people, you know, it's a long, that's a long, that's a long time, right? Eight years is a long time for a guy who was, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have a great year. But and I thought, you know, again, you have to everything in context. But listen, it's hard to get people to commit long term to Edmonton. It just is, right? That's that's just life there. And and Ryan Nugent Hopkins wants to be an oiler. He's, you know, he's been an oiler for life and he I I get it now. And it and it's, you know, the numbers, the cap hit is going to be um manageable for the Oilers. The term may they at the end of it may not, may you know wish it was 5 or 6. But No, they'll yeah, yeah no, they'll they, listen. I I think this is a really simple analysis for me is that the Oilers got a deal on the AV, which will help them in their trying to build a championship team yep. right now. But they're going to get burned by the longe- longevity of it. I mean, you're not going to want to be around that deal in the last two or three years. But that's okay. That's life. If you can win a cup before then, you yep. live with it. And, you know, um, and and for Nugent Hopkins, you know, don't get too caught up in the AV. At the end of the day, the totality of the dollars entering his bank account is what matters. <laughs> and And... And, you know, so it's north of 40 million uh, in his bank account. Could he have gone the market? And remember, he can't sign eight years anywhere else. He can only sign seven years on the open market. Where does the AV have to be, you know, for it to be, and it can't just be as good, you know, 40 million over seven years. It's got to beat Edmonton. He he likes Edmonton. So... You know, I, I think his camp probably made a wise decision that, you know, let's say you need you, you need to get, let's make it forty five million on the open market, and seven years is the max term. That's a six point four million AEV. He's not getting right. that. So, you know, this is where the eighth year matters. Only one team can give it to you. The totality of the dollars is in your bank account. I think the player is happy, and the team kind of hauling good job here in terms of grabbing a manageable AAV from what could have certainly been a higher number. Uh, all right. Uh, one last thing you want to talk about? You want to talk about Wayne Simmons, two-year deal? I, I don't really get that myself in Toronto, but okay. Um, also, we and I talked... Uh, I, I have no problem with it. I mean, I, I, I again, I think him and Spets are glue guys, just terrific character player. You still need that around that core. Uh, and again, the pressure on this team... Do you think the pressure went away after losing the first round of Montreal? <laughs> yeah. The pressure's going to be even crazier. <laughs> and so to me, having Spezza and Simmons around is to insulate some of that. I, I got no problem with it. Uh, and uh, you and I talked about it a lot, but good for Don Granato. Now the formal head coach of the Buffalo Sabres, not interim. And uh, John Vogel and I were talking about it yesterday on a headline podcast. But I, I think it's so critical for that team to have some consistency and some, you know, you got to build got to build a foundation there. And that foundation's been rotten for a long time. And I think this is a big part of it. And good for Don Granato, who is a hell of a guy. So, and I think he's a good yeah, coach. very much liked in the coaching community. I think there were a lot of happy faces after that decision was made because of how well liked he is. No yeah. question. All right. Anything else? Anything else before we take our uh, first break? You got? No, let's get to it. We got a big podcast out of us here. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, everybody. As promised, we are joined now by two of the finest investigative journalists in in the business. Doesn't matter whether it's sports or not, uh, but a real treat to have our own Katie Strang from The Athletic, of course, joining us, and Rick Westhead of TSN, CTV, and anybody who's followed some of the biggest uh, and most controversial uh, stories in sports and around hockey the last few years will know Rick by name and by sight. Um, thanks both for coming and hanging out with us today and, and and talking about one of the biggest stories going on in hockey right now. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. No, 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 Scotty, you said our own Katie Strang. You see, I, I can say our own Katie Strang and our own Rick Weston. That's, well, I'm, that's the truth. I'm the yeah. luckiest guy alive. I've got Katie <laughs> on one hand working for one of my two employers, and I've got Rick Weston working for my other employer at TSN. I am... Beyond well covered by investigative journalists, the best two in the business. That's true. Well, good point. And let's start. Um, maybe Rick, can we start with you and and uh, both you and Katie? But certainly, you've been covering it for uh, since it since it broke. Really, the story of former Chicago Blackhawks video coordinator Brad Aldrich uh, was with the team when they won the Stanley Cup in 2010. Um, after that, uh, he is a convicted sex offender, uh, convicted of sexual. Um, conduct with a teen and a Michigan high school. And since that time, uh, it, what has been unfolding is the response from the Chicago Blackhawks and more recently from the National Hockey League. We had Gary Bettman, of course, doing his uh, State of the Union before the start of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Rick, can you just maybe update us on on where we're at with this and specifically as it relates to the Blackhawks response and to the NHL's response? Well, of course, this this case has been going on for about six weeks, and and I've been on it for a while. But uh, we have, need to recognize WBEZ as well as Chicago Public Radio Station that actually did break the story of this original lawsuit, and then it was a, a game of of catch up after that. Um, where are we today? Well, we know that the NHL uh, confirmed yesterday. Gary Bettman confirmed that the Chicago Blackhawks have hired Jenner and Block, uh, a large law firm in Chicago, to do an independent investigation. Um, you know, where does it go from here? I'm not sure because he was asked whether he would make a promise, a pledge that the results of that investigation would be made public. And paraphrasing him, he said, well, we'll have to see what the results are. Uh, I'm not sure if I was the Chicago Blackhawk player, how much faith that would instill in me about participating in a process if I don't know for sure that those results will be out there for everyone to see. All right. Katie, um, You've covered a lot of these kinds of stories, various institutions, whether it's been uh, university athletic departments or people who work within uh, those kinds of uh, milieu. What's what have you what what have you been thinking about when you see the response from the Chicago Blackhawks and more recently with Gary Bettman speaking publicly for the first time about the NHL's response? Is this sort of fit a pattern for you or is what we're seeing here something different than what you've experienced in covering these kinds of stories? 
Yeah, I think that'll allow me to sort of dovetail with giving some appropriate recognition to Rick's, you know, tenacious work on this case, which is to say that, you know, in my experience covering um, issues of sexual assault and especially, you know, sort of pervasive sexual abuse, um, sort of the pattern for a reporter is to try to, one, you know, really zero in and hone in on the alleged incident and the alleged perpetrator uh, itself. But then sort of once that element of reporting is established, then you want to peel back the lens, look at the broader context and really examine with a critical lens the institutions that surround uh, that situation. So if a person was you know, enabled in any way, if there were disclosures made and not handled appropriately. Um, so in this particular case, I think we are now seeing that almost bifurcation of the issue where initially when the lawsuit came out, people, you know, it was shocking. There are very stunning allegations and people focused on that. But what I think truly was a needle mover and a game changer in this whole reporting process is Rick's piece last week, uh, I believe it was last week, Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, but when he detailed a meeting that um, reportedly happened where a skills coach, Paul Vincent, took the disclosures of that sexual assault allegation uh, and made the senior leadership group with the Blackhawks aware of those allegations. And according to multiple reports and Paul Vincent going on record himself to detail what happened, uh, that senior leadership group refused to file a police report with the Chicago Police Deport Department, according to him. Um, and that is why you are seeing now an investigation, not only into the sexual assault allegations themselves, but also the institutions that may have been aware who knew what and when and what they did with that information, which I think are very critical questions that need to be answered right now. And, and this both for uh, Rick and Katie, but what what's the most important thing you guys want to see next year as this story now feels to be thanks to the, to the work that you guys have put in it, but seems to be finally gathering some momentum that I think that it needs to put pressure. Um, but what's next that you feel is, is important that has to come out? Well, I, I think it's like a ball of yarn, right? And we're just pulling on it and pulling on it. We haven't heard anything from Joel Quenville yet. Um you know, we, we need to, we have no reason not to believe Mark Bergevin that he didn't know. And what this means is that the senior management of the Blackhawks discussed allegations that two players in their, on their team were sexually assaulted by a member of their own coaching staff. And they decided not to tell, you know, the director of player personnel. And we don't know what the situation is with the head coach. So we need to hear from Joel Quenville. And now again, that the there is not a commitment about making this public. I think that also opens up players to being asked about this. You know, what does Jonathan Taze think about uh, whether this clouds that team's run and whether, you know, this organization should make a promise of making the investigation results open? There, you know, not to mention all the different procedural moments that we're going to be seeing in the coming months in the courts once we get to discovery. Uh, you know, whose deposition, presumably this is all going to be filed, not presumably, the lawyer for the player told me that this will all be filed in open court. It'll be there for anyone to see unless the Blackhawks file a motion asking that, you know, some of that information is confidential. So I, this is going to be something we're going to be talking about for the next, you know, many months. And just 
piggybacking off of what Rick said, you know, I've had this question kind of a lot asking about this idea of an independent investigation, right? And, you know, inevitably, if it's not a government entity or a publicly funded entity, someone's got to foot the bill, right? And so that does make, you know, any sort of even optics of an independence fraught. And and that's, you know, just a, a reality of the situation. But one of the things, and Rick touched on this, that I think the Blackhawks or the league could do um, to help mitigate any sort of concerns or skepticism about the true independence of this investigation is to pledge to make the findings of this report public. And there is precedent for that happening, right? In the NFL, the Wells report was you know, made available to the public following Deflategate. In Ohio State, the probe into Dr. Richard Strauss was made, you know, available in its entirety. Now that's Ohio State's a public institution. So that's a little bit different in terms of like the onus of um, public disclosure. But I certainly think that if it's in the public interest, um, that the NHL could absolutely, you know, pledge to, to make the findings of the report public. And that would go quite a quite a ways into um, assuaging any concerns um, about independence, independence in this particular probe. We, we also saw that we also saw that with the NBA, right, when there were allegations of a, a toxic culture uh, at the Dallas Mavericks. All you have to do is go on Google and search Dallas Mavericks toxic culture report. The report completely, transparently, unredacted is there for anyone to find. I think all four of us were on Gary Bettman's media call before game one of the Stanley Cup final. He does it every year. It's the state of the the union. And he knew, obviously, that questions about the Blackhawk situation and the investigation were going to be coming. And, and I'll ask both Katie and Rick, I don't know whether you were surprised that Gary Bettman didn't take the opportunity Maybe to, to take that step, Katie, that you mentioned, to, to promise that um, this independent review, and it's being led by a former federal prosecutor, that that there would be transparency, that people would be able to see the findings and, and, to, and to decide for themselves how things unfolded, who should be held culpable, who knew what, who who knew what when and what decisions were made as a result of that. It, it didn't happen that way. And, and maybe both Rick and Katie can answer that. But are you surprised by that? And, and maybe the fact that Gary Bettman chose not to take that step, what kind of message does that send? Well, I, I, as I was listening to that press conference, and I'd love to kind of answer that question with a question because, you know, Scott, you and Pierre cover the sport on a daily basis. If you were the former Chicago Blackhawk player, and you were watching that press conference, and believe me, I'm sure that he was. How would you how would you describe Gary Bettman's posture, his uh, you know the, his the language that he chose to use, the jokes that he made a few times through the press conference? If you were that player, how would you have felt? Either of you guys watching that? Mm. Yeah, no, I I, I thought mm-hmm. it was uh, well, and listen, and, and you know, and I'm not not going to speak for Pierre on this, but but we have we have spent a lot of time around the league, and there have been a lot of issues that have come up, none maybe in exactly this, uh, you know, in, in this 
level of severity or in this situation with the team. But but Gary Bettman is, is very cautious. He's a lawyer. Um, he rarely tips his hand. He rarely acknowledges. I mean, even before the discussion about the sexual assault and the, the lawsuit, he, he, you know, he preemptively defended officiating during the playoffs. So he's a very cautious person. So I guess maybe I wasn't surprised by that, but I, I guess – you know, on a personal level, I, I think it would be disappointing if you were uh, uh, one of the victims of this sexual assault and this had unfolded and you were hoping that the league would take a, uh, a prominent role or uh, give assurances that there would be transparency. I, I can't imagine that there wouldn't be a high level of disappointment at how that unfolded. Right. And, and you know, it's the league's job to ensure that it's a safe workplace environment for players to make their living in as a, as a, as a, as a pure base. Right. Um, and to me that, that, that's, I mean, that's gotta be incredibly important. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, Rick, you, you won't mind me sharing this, but you texted me yesterday and you asked me and I didn't have really an answer for you at the time whether I knew that the league's new hotline for people to report um, concerns, things that are happening in the organization, whether that hotline was operating. And that's, by the way, that's why I asked the question uh, in the news conference yesterday and I uh, thought it was important to do so. But, you know, the idea here is that this can't happen. Like, uh, you know, again, we'll see what the investigation comes up with, but this is serious. And um, what these, you know, we have victims here. And if these allegations are proven true, uh, what are the mechanisms in place that this, that this is dealt with in a, in, a, in, a, in a completely different manner, not 11 years later? Um, and to make sure, of course, that it doesn't happen again. I mean, those are some of the broader strokes that, that keep coming to mind for me. You know, and... I think there is, look, everyone knows that Gary Bettman is a very bright and shrewd legal mind, right? Um, and I know that he's, you know, anticipating, you know, litigation and probably trying to thread some needles when he's in a press conference like that and fielding a lot of questions from a lot of different people about a very sensitive topic. I do, however, think that there is a way um, to answer questions um, in a way that, you know, provides some sort of clarity and satisfactory answers while also showing, you know, a level of humanity and empathy and compassion, um, not just in this particular incident, but also knowing that, you know, there may have been other people watching yesterday that have endured something similar, um, you know, in the NHL landscape, in a team mm -hmm. setting, or, you know, just fans of the game where it happens entirely outside of that situation. But I do think that there is a very clear way for him to have communicated um, that the league does not stand for sexual misconduct, will not tolerate it in any way, and is committed to taking proactive steps to ensure that it doesn't happen in the future and that the well-being and safety of not just players, but team employees, staff members, and anyone affiliated um, with the league is uh, able to work in a healthy, um, non-toxic work environment. Just picking up on that, if I could, guys, uh, 
you know, I have seen a few people in media say things like, this can never happen again. You know, we have to have uh, checks in there to protect people. It's going to happen again. It is. You know, we saw in the 1990s in hockey, the Graham James scandal mm-hmm. play out on the front page of newspapers and on national television for months on end. And again, I went back and I read a lot of that news coverage and it was the same thing we're hearing now. We need safety uh, protocols in place so that this never happens again. It will happen again. Well, what matters now are deeds, not words. And so if you are that Chicago Blackhawk player, if you are the family of that former teenage high school player who was sexually assaulted, you know, who Brad Aldrich was convicted of sexually assaulting, you're looking, well, how much faith can I have in the NHL? Let's ask Akeem Aliu. It's been a year and a half since the NHL promised to, you know, conduct an investigation looking into the racial abuse that he suffered and the allegations of career derailment. A year and a half. Where are we today? Are we any closer? And it's a great, it's a great point. I, I'm really, I'm glad, Pierre, that you asked the question about the hotline. And even I, I'd actually, you know, electronically raised my hand to try and get a follow up because it's still not clear, even though it sounds like in the recent fairly recent past that that hotline has been established so that staff and players around the NHL can have a safe place to go to raise concerns about workplace safety, as Katie alluded to, uh, on a number of different levels. It's still unclear how many calls are coming in, how many investigations have uh, been initiated as a result of that hotline being in place. So that would be interesting to know. Um, but but I, I'm curious what you, what you think – we're talking about the Chicago Blackhawks. It's an iconic franchise at the time of Brad Aldridge. And we mentioned he was part of that 2010 Stanley Cup winning team when two players alleged that during that season he sexually assaulted them. Um, they won three Stanley Cups over six years. Um, does that impact how how important this is, Rick? I mean, this is a, in terms of this team's profile, in terms of... Um, the allegations against essentially the, the very top of that organization that were asked to act and did not. I mean, what, what, how important is the outcome of this investigation? And assuming at some point it becomes public, how important is this moment for hockey, given the stature of that franchise and what it represents? Well, fair to say there's jobs at stake, right? Um, you know, it's a billion dollar company. It makes hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year. Uh, I reached out over the last couple of weeks to major sponsors of the Blackhawks and to donors to the Chicago Blackhawks Foundation. Not one company, not one person was willing to say publicly that the Blackhawks should even commission an investigation, independent or otherwise. And it does, to me, beg the question, where are we in 2021? You know, how far have we really come when it comes up to it, when you have an organization that's as powerful and influential in one of the largest media markets in North America with as much money as is it's where so much money is at stake. Are people really willing to do and say the right thing in those hard moments? Katie, what I'm curious because your experience in, in covering these kinds of stories, are you surprised by what you've seen and how this has unfolded? And, and maybe how do you see this, you know, if you, I know it's crystal balling, but what, what would you like to see? I mean, how, how does this unfold in a way that to 
go to to Rick's point, you know that that maybe show signs that we are moving in the right direction, or that there, you know, that this is a different time than 2010 or whatever. What do you think of that? To answer your first question, no, I'm I'm not entirely surprised by anything that has um, come out in this situation. Uh, Largely because, you know, when I have covered sexual assault or sexual abuse cases in the past, um, an almost, you know, universal component of those cases uh, are not, again, just, you know, the, the issues of the incident and the perpetrator itself, but the people who stayed silent and were thus complicit in, in the act and allowing someone to perhaps go undetected for a large period of time. Um, which could endanger or imperil others, which is a real problem. There was something that um, a sexual assault survivor told me once that has really struck with me just for its prescience, but also its universality, which is, he said, you know, silence is really an incubator for this. And I think that's, that's bang on, right? Like, I think the more we encourage and embolden people to speak up about this, um, the more people who act um, like a Paul Vincent, um, you know, according to reports of, you know, him, it sounds like clearly was a safe, he was a safe haven to players, someone that had cultivated such a, you know, great deal of trust and respect with them that they were willing to share their most painful private traumatic moment. Um, and I think, you know, when we, when we think of this, I hope we all, you know, strive to be someone that someone in a, in a situation like that would feel safe turning to. Right. And that, you know, when the, when, even when no one's looking that when you have the chance to do the right thing, you do the right thing, even if it's hard. I'd also expect guys that we will see more victims come forward. I can't say that for sure, but, you know, if you look at Katie's reporting uh, and her colleagues, uh, you know, there were interviews with with other people who he was close to, whether it was in Marquette, Michigan, whether it was in Houghton, Michigan, you know, you have to know that these families are all watching this so closely. And, and we know from police records that even though Brad Aldrich was charged and convicted in connection with one uh, minor, the police also interviewed other multiple other minors and you know it didn't lead to charges but the police investigated it and it would not surprise me if people feel emboldened now to come forward and say I was afraid to talk about this in you know 2013 2014 but I've found my voice and I want justice that wouldn't surprise me at all well I will say that uh, and Katie you're absolutely right when you talk about you know people you know, people doing the right thing, even when no one's looking. And I think it's really important, the work that Rick and you have been doing, because I think the work that you do also emboldens people to come forward. And it allows them a place to feel that their voice will be heard and that their stories will be heard and believed. And um, a tip of the hat to the work that you are both doing not just with this story, but with all the work that you do. And thanks so much for coming and hanging out with Pierre and I and talking about something that is critically important. It's critically important to the game, but it's critically important far beyond the 
the the walls of the hockey community. So well, and and to echo that, I'm sure there are lots of times where you guys get the kind of feedback that that is meant to to push back and to make you question yourself. But uh, clearly, that's not being that's not effective, and and we can tell with the excellent reporting both of you are continue to do. And uh, like I said, we're I'm lucky to have you both as colleagues. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having on. Pierre, I, I will give you all kinds of credit on on getting uh, both Katie and Rick uh, to join us today. It was your idea and it was a fine idea. And man, it's just, it's so important to keep talking about this issue, but but all these issues like that. So good for you and, mm-hmm. a, and a really, really important conversation, I think, with both Katie and Rick. So good on you. Yeah, no, I I thought really important for us to have that and to have the two people really so involved in, in, in their reporting to break it down for us. Um, you know, this is a huge story and uh, no, I'm glad that I'm glad we did that. Good stuff. We are now joined by Dave Haxtall, the new head coach of the Seattle Kraken. Dave, I, it's been five days, so maybe the novelty is worn off, but I wonder if you hear head coach Seattle Kraken and you wonder who they're talking about or are you used to it now? Are you, are you okay with the, no, it, the whole title? Yeah, it's, it's starting, it's starting to settle in. Um, still love the sounds of it and I'm uh, still excited about the opportunity. Maybe walk us through the, the process, Dave, uh, which was really under a shroud of secrecy, but how long the process played out and, and when you started to think to yourself, this could really happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it probably the relationship wise, it, you know, it started back at the world championships in, uh, in 2019, but um, you know, we had a chance, we, you know, we did talk, um, I guess maybe about a year ago now um, in an initial interview process. And then that, that picked up then uh, here after our season ended, um, you know, with a couple of different interviews, I had a chance to get out to Seattle for a day and, uh, be there in person. Um, and then, you know, as we all know, once, you know, once things start to happen, uh, they, they happen quickly. So, uh, my wife and my son and I had a chance to fly out and uh, it was great to have them there with me, uh, you know, on that day, my daughter wasn't able to be there, but, uh, but the rest of us were. Yeah. I'm curious when, when you go through this process and, and you're having discussions with Ron Francis and, uh, were there things that surprised you or were there things that they wanted to know about you or from you that, that took you by surprise or? You know, I, I wouldn't say there were things that surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tried, yeah, I tried to listen and, and really hear what they were, you know, what they wanted to know about me. Obviously, you know, I, I came from the college game, uh, you know, went through different experiences some successes, some failures in Philadelphia um, you know, having a chance to be part of the organization with the Leafs and that great opportunity, working with two uh, different really good coaches from Mike to Sheldon. Um, you know, obviously, as you go through an interview process, there's, you know, there's uh, things that uh, um, the interviewer wants to discover. So I tried to listen and tried to give that in just in real honest, uh, you know, real honest format. And everything's really comfortable. Uh, you know, the uh, the process was as I said, was really comfortable and, uh, you know, we just dealt one-on-one on a real uh, natural basis. Yeah. Pierre, can I just, I, ju- just jump in and follow mm-hmm. up? I did a piece not too long ago on, you know, what it's like to, when the NHL team hires a GM and what that process is like. And I talked to a couple of GMs who felt that the process for them was as important in the questions that they asked 
of ownership or whoever was doing the hiring. And I wonder if that was part of it for you too, that you had as maybe not as many questions for Ron and his group as they did for you, but is that part of it? Cause you have to find out whether it works on your end too. It's, it's part of it because it has to be a good fit. So, and that's where um, there's no question it's an interview process and I answered more questions uh, than I asked, but it does become, you know, a discussion as well. And um, it's got to be honest, you know, at that point in time, you know, it's, it, you know, the answers in the discussion has to be honest because there has to be a fit at the end of the day. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what the, you know, this entire process felt like to me. Have you thought about picking Jorah Gallant's brain at some point? Yeah, I've, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, uh, I've stayed in touch with Turk. We worked together just before we went to Vegas. Uh, the world championships in 17 and what a, what a good man. We had a great time together and, you know, really, uh, you know, came to know him and, and really just respect what he does. So I've, I've had a, you know, I've been fortunate to stay in touch with him and uh, um, we haven't talked uh, directly here in the last few days, but uh, for sure, he's a guy that I'll, uh, I'll reach out to and talk with. I'm curious about nothing else. I, you know what? I can just I, I can come out of it with a couple of great laughs, right? I mean, conversations. <laughs> who knows where it's going to take you? Uh, but I, I know this. In all seriousness, I'll, I'll learn something. Yeah, I, I'm just curious because it is. I mean, the process is so. You know, it's so interesting for you. I mean, when you took the job in Philly, okay, you know, okay, here's Claude Drew and. Jacob Vorchak, it, it, you sort of, you know things about your lineup and, and you move from there. And I wonder what it's like to sit in your office and plan a training camp and, and prepare for what is something that is completely unknown to you. And I wonder what that process is like for you. Well, it's, you know, what I'll, what I'll do once, you know, once I get back to that, uh, you know, that task is to solidify the areas, uh, the detail um, in the way we want to go about doing things. Um, you know, my focus over the next couple of weeks here, uh, is, is going to be on building a staff. And, and that's the most important thing that I can pay attention to now. You know, if I'm asked for input and, and, uh, ask for information on players that I may have, you know, knowledge with for the expansion draft, um, you know, obviously I'm going to, you know, I'm going to offer that, uh, that information, but, you know, Ron and his staff have, you know, have the, the, the expansion draft extremely well covered and they'll be really well prepared. Um, I'll give input where asked there. And right now, like I said, my main focus is to work at building a staff. And um, by the time we get through that process, we, you know, we're, we're likely going to, we'll be close to the expansion draft and we should have some players. And then it becomes even a little more real in terms of how the detail of how, you know, the, the vision that I have for, for our hockey team how that fits into the the people that we have. Now, have you forgotten how many friends you had in hockey <laughs> in terms of assistant coaches reaching out? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's that's been the case, man. You know, there's so many good people that uh, uh, that are around this game, and yeah, the uh, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out, and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, I'm going to work through the whole process and make sure that. Uh, you know, that we end up with a, a staff that can work hard together, that enjoys being around each other, um, you know, and, and has all the all the different elements to uh, uh, to get the job done in the National Hockey League. Yeah, I, it, Pierre and I actually talked about this the, just after you were named as a head coach about the, the importance of building a staff and, and making sure it's a staff that is in many ways like a team. And I wonder, 
I don't know what your experience was like in building the staff in Philadelphia and, and then being part of, uh, you know, the staff in, in Toronto. What do you think you've learned or what kinds of elements are really important to you as you begin to put that staff together? Well, number one, I mean, that's that's the group that you, you know, you spend the entire season alongside. You know, you have your family uh, and you have, you know, the staff members that you're working with. And um, so it's, you know, it's really important to be, you know, to, to be comfortable as a group and be able to, doesn't mean you're always getting along or always agreeing or you have to be best friends going in, but, you know, you have to have some synergy that, uh, that you can, uh, you know, work through, you know, both good and, and, you know, rough times as you go along the way. So, uh, for me, that's a main focus. Obviously, I want to make sure we have all the right elements in terms of talents and abilities, uh, to fill in a staff, you know, to fill in areas that I know that, uh, that we, you know, I need to have filled in around me. Uh, but, you know, they also, you know, the, the big part also for me is I want to make sure we can have a, you know, a staff that's hardworking and, and tight and, uh, you know, shows up together and, and gets the job done. The, the league is, has some great examples in recent years, Dave, of head coaches that get their second chance. And the way that they seem to flourish and, and the lessons they brought with them, what would you say are some of the lessons that you're bringing with you now to your second opportunity here there's there's pieces of a lot of things um i'll just i mean very honestly the first thing is just more comfortable with the challenge at hand you know i I have a clear understanding a more clear understanding of what it is of what the day-to-day challenges of of the nhl are uh right from you know this point forward of, of building a staff through training camp through the early part of regular season and onward um you know, if I'm being blunt and honest, that's probably the biggest thing. You know, I have a better understanding of what lies ahead and what some of those challenges are. And, uh, you know, believe I'm better, you know, better armed uh, to, to be able to deal with uh, the challenges that are there. And, um, you know, just for me, it's just yeah, I've got such an excitement about the opportunity ahead. Um, and, you know, that's a good feeling to have. Yeah, it, it's actually, it was strange timing. I happened to be in Philadelphia when the Flyers made the coaching change. I was working on something else. And I wonder what that period of time after was like for you and whether you, you know, whether you wonder if you're going to get another chance or whether you, you know, how do you come out of something like that? Because it can be well, just, it, it, it had to have been a very difficult time. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I went home. We uh, we pulled uh, we pulled one kid out of school. The other was at a birthday party. Pulled uh, pulled him out of the birthday party. Went home. Had a little discussion. We've always talked about everything pretty openly. You know, even when our kids were younger at that age. So we got through the discussion and you know kind of what it all means. And uh, I was my son at the time. He kind of looked at me and said. Any chance I can go back to the birthday party now? <laughs> so so that, that was the immediacy of it. Um, you know, other than, you know, your cell phone being shut down and good things like that. Um, but no, you know what? The, I mean, in seriousness, it's, it gives you a chance to kind of look from within, right? Take a close look. Um, and and I, I truly believe, I talked about it in the press conference a little bit. Really important to look at the things that were successful, uh, you know, not just at the negatives. Uh, but look at those just as hard um, as, you know, the areas that, uh, that, you know, that I failed in during my time in Philly um, and just try to do a full analysis of it. And to do that, I, had, I backed away for a couple of weeks. It was near Christmas time. So, you know, we just, we, we got home, we had, we had Christmas. And then from there, it was just about moving forward and, and building. And, um, you know, it didn't, it, you know, obviously it's not an enjoyable time. Um, 
but it, it really didn't shake. I mean, you know, didn't shake or rattle me to a degree where, you know, it threw me off course. It was, uh, you know, I've always been a little bit uh, about digging in and, and uh, figuring out a way forward. And that's exactly what we did. So, um, you know, the, over the next couple months, I, you know, got a computer that, uh, that I could use that had, a, you know, the same video system and started digging into the past and digging into the future. Ron mentioned uh, that you guys hit it off at the 2019 World Championships, both part of the, the Canadian contingent there. And what is it do you think that the two of you sort of see the game in similar ways? Like, what are some elements that that you could bring up there? You know, it was interesting. We early on in that tournament, we were you know our training camp was in uh, was in Austria, and we took a car ride. A few I can't remember even how many hours. It was two or three hours up the road across the, the border into the, the Czech Republic to. Uh, to watch, I think it was Sweden, Finland playing an exhibition game. Um, but you know, you just you get an opportunity to talk about you know about hockey, about uh, individual players, uh, and about life in general. And you know, that's you know, we we did a lot of that. You know, I remember that particular car trip. Um, but just you know, throughout the tournament, that tournament has such a rhythm to it. Early on, you know, it's uh, it's you know, I don't want to use the word casual, but. Uh, the intensity level is much lower, you know, as you go into training mm-hmm. camp and it builds through the tournament as you get to the medal round. And I, I think it's a, it's a pretty neat uh, opportunity uh, to see people both, you know, in a relaxed personal setting, as well as, you know, as a tournament ramps up, you know, into the intensity of, uh, of the competition. Um, and it's, you know, we just, we just spend time around it. And um, I think, you know, probably some of the core, you know, core processes or, you know, values, if you want to speak, you know, of, you know, how we view the game in terms of, you know, ability, in terms of uh, the speed of the game, you know, in terms of, you know, talking about players that are seeing the game on the ice and how they see it and their intelligence in reading the game, you know, and then, you know, obviously just uh, the competitiveness. So, Pierre, I think those are some of the areas where, you know, we've probably found some common ground early on. What do you think it'll be like between now and I think training camp supposed to start 22nd of September? Maybe there'll be a rookie camp. I, I, I'm not even sure on what will unfold as as we emerge from what we've been going through in terms of our schedule. But what do you think it's going to be like for you to have to sort of have the patience and let things fall and not sort of be thinking ahead to opening night all the time? Is that a, is that a challenge for you, do you think? Or what do you think that process is going to be like? I think, you know what, I think I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be so busy that I don't, I really don't believe that's going to be a, an issue. Um, you know, I, I know when I have a few hours uh, or if I have a day or two where I can, that time is going to be spent with my family. And I, you know, I know that because I, I know the value of that. Um, that time becomes few and far between as you get closer and closer to some of those dates that you talked about. There won't be many of those days. So, you know, in the meantime, I think we're going to be pretty busy and I, I think it's really important just to stay in the moment. Like there's a lot of things that have to happen. We can't fast forward to, to the drop of the puck. You know, for me, one of the, one of the biggest days I'm looking forward to is the first day on ice of training camp. So everything, you know, from, you know, a couple of days ago, building towards that day, um, you know, it's really important planning and detail and the whole process of, of getting ready for that day, because that's our first day that we actually, as a team, uh, get to start building on the ice. There's a lot of building to do before that. Uh, but for me, that's, you know, that's a real focal point and uh, it's going to be a great day. 
And my last question for you, Dave, is is whether you can share maybe, although Ron wouldn't like that, but uh, the vision for how this team will be built just from the point of view of, like, I think Vegas clearly went for the jugular right off the hop. They want it to be a contender as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, and so certain decisions are made that way. But, you know, you, you can also do that while also wanting to teach a younger team. And what's your sense of how that's going to play out? Well, a part of teaching a, a younger team is, you know, around the competitiveness of it uh, is is having success along the way as you're learning and as you're growing. And so two things, I guess I would say, and I'm not revealing a whole lot new here for sure <laughs> that, you know, that you haven't uh, heard or, uh, you know, that you wouldn't think of yourself. But, um, you know, I do think we have an opportunity to be successful, uh, you know, as we move into year one. And for me, the biggest thing is uh, there's an awful lot of comparisons that will be made. And, and that's great, you know, from fans and everybody around the game, the comparisons and the successes that Vegas has had. Really important for us to set our own standards. Absolutely set our own standards, live to those standards every day. And that's what will carry us forward to where we want to get to. And uh, I'll take I'll have one more as well. And I'm, you've mentioned your family in, a number of times. And I wonder if there's been a moment you know, since uh, the job was yours that has sort of been, you know, sort of reinforced for them that this is going to be a great fit and a great adventure for them. And I don't know whether it's in Seattle or people you've heard from. Has there been a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to work for all of us? You know what? Um, everybody, our, you know, our group of four here, including me, was, was really excited when we got the phone call and we knew we'd have the opportunity to, to go to Seattle. We did something a little different this time around. Uh, you know, the first time uh, in going to Philadelphia, we kept it very, the kids were younger. So we, you know, we kept it uh, fairly tight between my wife and ourselves as we were going through that whole process. But uh, the one thing that uh, we said, hey, you know, as we go through this, you know, the journey that can be, you know, that can come with this business, we're going to be open, we're going to be honest with, you know, with our kids. So we had the chance to do that and kind of talk through a little bit the basics of, you know, of everything that was happening along the way. So when that phone call did come, uh, it was a, it was an exciting group for me. I love seeing that. I love the fact that uh, that we can you know we can all be part of it. So, did they give you some advice along the way in contract negotiations or details? Anything? <laughs> anything oh, yeah, they had? Two my two best agents. I think they uh, <laughs> the, their their biggest thing was probably. Uh, Making sure they, you know, what, what, what's, can I come to the home opener? Where can we be? How does, how does that all work? Right. That, that's that stuff, it, it doesn't change. It's, it's the great stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stuff. Can I come to the practice rink and, you know, can we skate all those things? Uh, good stuff. Well, Dave, it's been great to catch up with you and so pleased for you and the opportunity ahead for you and your family and that, that 30 second marketplace. It's going to be outstanding i know pierre and i we got to find a way to get to seattle pierre maybe we can do uh oh yeah maybe we can do a two-man advantage tour we'll get out to seattle and do, do one there maybe we can get dave to come on with us again yeah there'll be some there'll be some great spots there to uh to host the show that sounds like a great idea <laughs> <laughs> congratulations uh dave. yeah thanks for your time dave it was great uh, scott pierre thanks very much i appreciate it thank you Pierre, that was a ton of fun. And I, as I mentioned, I, I happened to be in Philly completely on another story at the time when Dave Axtell was relieved of his duties there. But I, I'm I'm really curious to see how 
I, I just think he's he's a nice fit for Seattle, and uh, I'm curious to see what his staff looks like. And the second time around, it just we've seen it historically, whether it's you know Bruce Cassidy in Boston or Craig Berube in St. Louis, and go down the list. Um, I, I think it's going to be a really yeah, nice Rick, fit. Rick Tockett, second time yes, head coach, uh, a lot of success and. By the way, really nice of you to remind him that you were there when he got fired in Philly. I thought that was very tactful. <laughs> I did well. It just, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but the, the one thing I'll say about Dave Haxtell, because it, it's a hiring that, that you know, didn't overwhelm some people last week. And one thing I'll point to is that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of reaction when the expansion National Predators announced Barry Tross as their inaugural coach. And I think we know what kind of career Barry Tross has had. <laughs> so... You know, just give the guy some time to see how he fits into this would be my point. You know, it's not always the the sexier name that wins the day. And, uh, you know, this might be an example of that. Yeah, no, I I, I think it is. I'm, I'm with you entirely. And, and you're right. It's about how, you know, people who do get a second chance and learn about it. And I think, you know, think about your, your own career. You and I have talked about this, you know, things you've learned and, you know, on the broadcast end or things I learned, God, when I started in sports. And I know there would be people who would argue that nothing has changed. But when I started in sports, <laughs> I was like, you know, what did I know? And, and it, what I didn't know was a lot. So um, and I thought Dave was really, you know, really candid about that that learning process right it is a, mm-hmm. it's a process and it's a journey so yeah no I, i'm i'm excited and i'm excited that maybe someday you and i will go together to oh, seattle yeah. it's a see i know very little we about should that rent city. an rv you should fly to toronto from atlanta we'll rent an rv and we'll just hit a bunch of different nhl markets <laughs> all the way out to seattle all right so you know what i think we're on to something here i think we are the athletic it's- rv Yes, a little sponsorship yeah. thing. Do you know that? And Apparats so now, and pickles in the fridge. Oh my God! Do you remember? So I, I'm, sponsors out there, you know, you know how to get a hold of the athletic. But do you remember when we were at ESPN and we did training camp? We like where there was a little map, and you and I were at different training camps. I think I think we're onto something. Yeah, get a little RV and John, John Madden used to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Of course, I would have to drive it though because you're a maniac. Oh no 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 oh no I I, I well. It, the problem would be if I was driving, you would be in charge of the tunes. If you're driving, I'm in charge of the tunes. So it would Oof. be it would be a, bal- a balance. Yeah. All right. I That's think we're tough. onto something though. Okay. Let's uh, let's keep that let's keep that percolating. Um, that was a really good show today, buddy. Good work by you. Uh, what else we got going on here? We got Nate Thompson of the Winnipeg Jets, former Montreal Canadian and Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, visits with the Athletic Hockey Show USA. Uh, Sean Gentile and Ryan Clark uh, co-hosting this week. So good for Ryan as Craig Custins is on vacation. Um, the Athletic Hockey Show Thursday. Lazy Craig Custins, eh? Taking Lazy. vacation. I think he's writing a book. So he's probably not even... He's probably not vacationing. So. Uh, the Athletic Hockey Show Thursday with Ian Mendez and down goes Brown, Sean McIndoe. Uh, and Friday, the Prospect Series with Max Boltman and Corey Pronman. You should check out our comments section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app and rate and subscribe to The Athletic Hockey Show on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber, who is that anyway these days? I don't know who that is. Go to theathletic.com slash hockey show and receive a subscription for $3.99 a month. Pierre, that was excellent work. Um, and I can't wait to see what we come up with next week. Yeah, Have a good happy one, man. Canada Day for tomorrow. That's Love right. Yes. Are you, you going to sit in your Adirondack chair? Uh, Muskoka chair, I think is what it's called, my friend. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> All right, pal. Have a good one. We'll talk to you next week. Right on, right on.